Welcome to Things I Didn't Learn in School. My guest today is Lois Letchford, who wrote a memoir called Reversed about raising a son who really struggled in school, but ultimately prevailed and became a professor. And Lois also teaches other educators about how to deal with non-neurotypical children. You can read about her approach on her website, loisletchford.com, L-O-I-S-L-E-T-C-H-F-O-R-D.com. If you're enjoying these podcasts, please post a review on Apple Podcasts. If you're interested in my thoughts about what's going on in the world more short term, go to Substack and look under things I didn't learn in school. And of course, if you haven't had a chance to do so, I encourage you to buy a copy of Raising a Thief, or if you enjoyed it, submitting a review on Amazon. So thanks for listening to another episode. Here we go. Welcome to Things I Didn't Learn in School. My guest today is Lois Letchford, who is an author of the memoir Reversed and an educator and an expert, I would say, in how different people learn. Lois, welcome to Things I Didn't uh, Learn in School. Thank you, Paul. I'm delighted to be here. For those people who haven't read your book and don't know who you are, why don't you share with the audience a little bit your story? In 1994, I sent my six-year-old son, Nicholas, to school. And you expect, yeah, there's a few problems. You don't expect a massive failure. And Mm. on day six, the first grade teacher said to me, oh, I I don't know what I'm going to do with him. He's so far behind and he just stares into space all day. Mm. And that's the start of a journey that, that was totally unexpected. In hindsight, I should have taken him out of school that day, but I needed a totally different mindset to do that. I needed to withdraw him from school and re-approach learning from a whole new point of view Mm -hmm. as to just teaching children letters and sounds. Well, he obviously couldn't do that. What else should I have done? So many other things I should have done, but that time I didn't know it. Right. Well, like so many parents who are wrestling with something that's unfamiliar to them. So zoom out a little bit. What's dyslexia? It's just a learning difference. It's actually a language challenge that people face that is often undiagnosed because they can survive life. Mm-hmm. You know, why do people get by without it being noticed? There are various degrees of dyslexia. Okay. For those that uh, can't do anything. Yep. People like me who actually learn to read but don't comprehend. Mm. And people who actually manage to maybe read and comprehend and write a little bit more but have organisational challenges. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the thoughts in your head to get to words on paper might be more challenging. Inability to recall days of the week and abstract things like your birth date and your home address are all signs of struggles. Inability to tell left and right. And, and do, you, mentioned, you mentioned that your son also was a mixed dominant. See, the left and the right hand wasn't. Yes. So we, the way we talk about dyslexia, and I think the term is, is it's a disability. So there's something yeah. wrong. But I've often wondered when I thought about that, that people have probably been dyslexic for thousands and thousands of years. But do you think that much as dyslexia describes as a disability, is there a pro to it? And if so, what is it? No. your answer is no okay from my point of view the answer is no there isn't a a pro to it why is that 
it's just one struggle after another. And if I wasn't on live, I would say some rude words because it, I can do things that other people don't do. I teach children that other people don't teach. Mm. Who cares? My struggle is getting my words from here onto paper. But your son, to jump forward a little bit, your book does this as well. He ends up being a very sophisticated scientist, as I get it, actually a data scientist related to pathogens. So it'd be very interesting to get his perspective on what's going on, what's going on now. But in any case, this is not a low IQ profession. And I would imagine it's one where a little bit of intellectual creativity can help. So let me just push on this a little bit more. I know he struggled like crazy to learn how to read and get through school. And and I want to talk a lot about the shame that came from that. But you still would say that there's no pro to being dyslexic in the long term, not necessarily the school period. Nicholas is an exception. Richard Branson is an exception. Mm. You know, how many have we missed in that process? Right. How many, you know, end up in prison? Because if you don't survive those first five or ten years in school, the prognosis is pretty dire. Fair enough. And we look at the two or three percent or what, I don't even know what the percentages are of who succeed, but we fail to look at the massive numbers who fail. So Nick has these profound challenges and and dyslexia is his diagnosis? No, because I go back to that. Okay, great. First up is there's me. Mm -hmm. Second component, and this is for parents, Nicholas had ear infections from 8 to 18 months. Hmm. Ear infections impact the brain growth. Really? Significantly because you, the brain grows on input. If you have no input from audio or it's distorted, the brain actually loses neurons because it says, I don't need them. I'm not getting it, so it drops them off. Mm-hmm. It's a critical component of learning. Fascinating. So you're, you're picking up, before he started school, did you suspect there was any issues with them? Yes, yeah. I did. I knew there was something wrong because he was so slow with language, uh-huh. so slow to do things. If you asked him to do something, Nicholas, we're going swimming. What do you have to do? He would sit there and the thinking was slow. Interesting. Staring off into space, never defiant, but... Really, what did you say? What did- <laughs> and, and in retrospect, what do you think was going on? Was it a processing thing? Yes, definitely okay. a processing issue, which, you know, schools really struggle to deal with. I've given you an instruction, do it. Right. Not five minutes later, and that was a real problem for Nicholas. So the schools did not fare particularly well in your book, and particularly the Aussie schools. Uh, so you were raising him initially in Brisbane, Australia, and then later moved to the United States. And uh, describe what, was, what that was like. Well, the first grade was absolutely the worst by a long, long shot, and that was disastrous, the only mm-hmm. thing I could use. And, and I didn't realise how bad it was until I spoke to Nicholas recently. Oh, really? What did he say? Yes. He couldn't talk. He literally could not talk and tears ran down his face. As a child, not as an adult looking back at it. As an adult looking back. Oh, really? Yes. Wow. He's successful. He can, he's articulate. He can talk to anyone. 
and it, that boy just went. And so it was that it was that raw that that experience yeah. of shame. He was socially isolated in school from day one. No one spoke to him. He sat in a lunch room by himself. Right. Social isolation is as cruel as physical punishment. And that's why I should have taken him out of school. No child should have that memory. Right. And it's still, it's still very fresh with him. Oh, and he hadn't dealt with it. Mm-hmm. And dealt with it. I hadn't dealt with it. And you think now that's gone, it's okay. It's not gone and it's not okay. Hmm. And yet there were certain people early in his life. And I remember I, I recounted after I read the seed, I described it to my wife at the dinner table, the story of the swim lesson I thought was so profound. So even in this sea of people who are utterly unsympathetic and really see in kind of a cruel way, no perspective, which seems nuts for a six or seven year old kid. Then there's this swim teacher who speaks his language and is able to communicate with them. And this is like the first connection outside of you where Nick all of a sudden feels confident. So can you talk about that? Rob Cusack, the swim coach. Yes. Phenomenal. An Olympic swimmer. Right. Phenomenal man. Just took Nicholas under his wing. And if Rob Cusack wasn't there, he would go to another teacher and the other teacher, you know, within five minutes, Nicholas would be sitting on the edge of the pool or sitting on the bleachers because he couldn't follow directions. Mm-hmm. And and I, as a parent, what do you do? You just sit there. And Rob just took Nicholas and nothing faced him. Rob Cusack, I went to him because He was renowned for teaching children who had Down syndrome or cerebral palsy who had differences. And he said, I'll teach you. And Nicholas fitted into that category. So when he started to have problems with learning to breathe in swimming, which is a really quite a complex skill, Mm. physical skill, he just sat Nicholas on the side of the pool, said to me, what hand does he write with? Well, that's a problem again. Because <laughs> he was riding with his left and we're going to shift him to his right. Okay, he said. And he, he got out of the pool and got a, a waterproof marker and just said to Nicholas, I'm putting a dot here, Nick, on your right hand. Now, when you swim, your arm goes under the water. When it comes out, you just look at that dot. And that's what happened. Nicholas puts his arm under the water, watches his arm, and he turns. What do you attribute the teachers in school being so clueless about your son? Because in theory, people who I would imagine get into teaching, they're interested in teaching a range of kids, but in your experience, not so much. Let me tell you about the school we were at. Okay. It's three kilometers from the university. 37 languages were spoken in that school. Hmm. So it's got It's got the highest scores of any school in the district. Why? Because they were all professors or PhD students and da-da-da, you name it. Right. We don't have learning disabilities in our school. So then you hone in on uh, Nick's challenges, and this becomes absolutely your focus. So the other thing, the subtext of the book a little bit to me is mother's love so can you describe that a little bit i will challenge you a little bit on that okay surprisingly 
because I sent him into school in second grade uh-huh. with the understanding that my husband's a professor, we're going to have study leave at the end of the year. Mm. I still trusted the school system. Mm-hmm. Still trusted my child would learn within the school hours. Mm. And I, at that point, didn't take him out of school. And so there's still Nicholas will learn within this setting. In the middle of 1995, my husband goes back to, we go to Oxford for his study leave. And I said to Nicholas, do you want to go to school here? And my little boy, his face, blood just dropped to the ground. Mm. It was just a ghastly feeling to see this kid, his pink face just go white. And he can't even say, I don't understand people. I don't want to. So I just saw that and said, oh, you will learn at home. And initially I failed. Mm -hmm. So we're away from our home. We're away from the school. I took books with me that you think are going to work and they don't. And it's me now with a blank slate. I've got to do something. What can I do? We're in this city of Oxford, which is historically unbelievable. And there's Nicholas and me, and I started to read and write about what we were doing and experiencing the things that we were talking about and writing about what we were experiencing about, and that was transformative. And I tapped into his curiosity unexpectedly. Mm. It was all by accident. With the maps and so forth. Yes. Yeah. Yes. What the map is a visual thing. Well, I didn't say it was easy, but I'm saying that that it seems to be you were contrasting kids who get crushed by their learning style. And it seems that he was so, so fortunate to have you willing to fail and try something new and fail and try something new until you connected. But the things, the swimming connected, being out of school connected, the curiosity driven in the maps connected. And that that having somebody in your corner of the ring, so to speak, to use a boxing metaphor, is critical to survive this. And he had you. You were willing to put in that pain to get there. We think of reading as learning about letters and sounds. Mm. It's reading about is like the tree trunk. What do you mean by that? Sounds are the connector. Uh-huh. I can't do a thing about them. All I can do is it's a tree. I can plant, I can add water, I can fertilise it. Mm-hmm. The letters and sounds are the connector between my fertiliser and the branches. And you've got to do it all. If all I do is teach letters and sounds, I really limit everything about teaching and learning. The first thing you've got to have with teaching yes. is active engagement in learning. If all we're doing is teaching children letters and sounds, we're not asking, have they connected? I see. Are they remembering it? Now, looking back on it, is Nick able to articulate how he began to make connections? Or was it just a sort of mystery as you were going through it at the time? He can articulate it. At the front of his PhD thesis is I'm, I'm back in the place where I first learned that I could learn. And I asked him about this and he said, you wrote a poem about a witch 
He said, I don't remember any of it. But it was just so funny. And it was interesting because I didn't write about that. Mm. Didn't write about that poem because the poem was terrible. Mm-hmm. But Nicholas is seven years old and we wrote, I wrote the poem literally to learn the SP words of spin, spell and spot, mm-hmm. spit, you know, and wrote this silly poem about it. And Nicholas asked me, can we write the ingredients for this spell? I said, of course, Nicholas, we can write it. And he wrote, you know, bird poo, two drops, the mm-hmm. blood of a dead lizard, three alien eyeballs, and he would laugh about it. And when a friend came to the door, he would run to the room, pick up the book and say, read this, read this, read this. And the more they oohed and aahed, the more he laughed. Mm-hmm. Does he remember? He doesn't remember we're doing SPIC. He remembers that this poem was so funny. It was hilarious. What we teach and what kids learn are sometimes two different things. And so why do you think that that, like neurologically, why do you think that that thing of the the silly poem cracked him open? Is it because it's tapping like the right side of his brain? Is it because his anxiety disappears because it's like a game? Is it what's going on there that allows somebody who's blocked to become unblocked, so to speak? The second thing you said was the anxiety. The anxiety is gone. That was huge that we are learning in a place where he is happy. Where he feels safe. That was number one. Mm-hmm. I didn't even recognise. Mm-hmm. Secondly, there was laughter. Mm-hmm. We're connecting the oral language and the written language, mm. which was huge. All of that. All of that. And poetry lines the brain with language. Poetry rhymes or songs. All of those things were critical to his success. Why the poetry and the rhymes? What's so special about them? Two things. First up, it's the foundation of language is what we do with all young children. And poetry and rhymes line the brain with language. We know that phonemic awareness is critical for learning to read. What's what's phonemic awareness? Is the ability to distinguish between sounds Uh and hear which sounds are rhyming and which are the same and which are different. And we know all of that. When we often teach it, we do it in isolation. Can you hear the word that tree and bee are the same? Are they, do they sound the same? Are they rhyming? So for a teacher who encounters a kid like this in class or for a parent who has one of these kids, what is your first piece of advice uh, you know, when they're in that age, that five, six, seven age, and you see this challenge emerge? Work on rhymes and poems. Work with rhymes and poems. Work with pictures as well. Give them the picture or an action mm-hmm. so that they're not just seeing words as something that happens in space, but you can see a connection between the pictures and the words. Did it affect him in other areas of his life, like math or uh, physically in terms of sports? Definitely in maths, the regrouping thing. He couldn't regroup easily. And the poor teacher just threw the stuff at me and said, you do it. Mm -hmm. And how'd you figure that out? Again, by doing a lot of touching. So we had some, you know, the MAB blocks, the little blocks that kids use to learn mathematics or used to learn mathematics with, like 
cues and air rods. And so we put down on paper, you know, seven plus eight equals. And so you get the number seven blocks out and eight blocks out. Now what do you do? It's an understanding of base 10. Everything I do is foundational. You know, the poetry is foundational. It's building the brain with sounds and words. This mathematics, touching it, one-to-one connection. Do you have any idea what percentage of the population roughly suffers from some form of dyslexia? They say it's between 15 and 20%. Oh, my goodness. It's huge. I think, and then on top of that, you can add a few more percent for who, from poor teaching. Then there's, in the book, you guys move from Australia to Texas. And if I got it right, as Nick aged, the severity of the challenge actually lessened, if I understood correctly. In other words, he had this very intense stuff with foundational things like adding and reading. But then, actually, as the challenges became more sophisticated his challenges diminished, which isn't what I would have expected. I would have thought that writing essays or something like that or trigonometry would have crushed him, but he seemed to he seemed to navigate that. So what do you think happened? We built a solid foundation. Interesting. We built this huge foundation. It was slower mm-hmm. to build it. It took more effort. It took more time. But once the foundation was there, He's capable of doing anything. Mm -hmm. It's that often that foundation is built very poorly. And then when you try and build these other things on top of it, the high-level thinking, it collapses. I wouldn't have imagined that Australia and the United States have a big difference in the educational systems, but it sounds like there was some sort of difference. Can you describe that a little bit? Believe it or not, to me, the difference was in mindset. In Australia, he was 11. He was turning 11 in 1999. And in Australia, everyone is delighted with what Nicholas has achieved. He's doing what everyone else is doing. He's reading 20 minutes a night. Mm. He's doing okay in the classroom. He's on the fifth grade level, but he reads on a third. Mm -hmm. He reads and writes. We never expected that. Mm can do the spelling, he can do the maths at this level. Ah, even me, his mother, over the moon with what Nicholas can achieve. Mm. We go to Texas. The first thing the principal says is, I think he should repeat. The statistics on repeating, and Nicholas has already repeated once, are really bad. Why, why is that? Uh, because nothing changes. Nothing changes. You just repeat it. You didn't get it the first time. We'll put you through again the second time. It didn't help. It doesn't help. Mm-hmm. Ah, my husband, he's, he's, I married well. He says, well, he doesn't say no. He said, won't he be old by the time he graduates? And the principal said, mm, yes, that's a problem. This is what we'll do. We've got a class in middle school that does grades seven, eight, and nine in two years. How about we give him longer in elementary school, catch him up in middle school and he'll be fine in high school. He'll graduate with his peers. That was the first. That's a mindset shift. The mindset shift being the expectations got reset that, no, he shouldn't be behind. He should be with his peers. That's right. 
And what do you attribute that to? Just a quirky principle or do you think that there's some broader truth there? I think it was just the quirky principle. So it's another example of the swim teacher. In other yeah. words, this the guy's got a little bit funky wiring. He's yeah. got a mom that won't let up. And there are these little glimpses. The swim teacher yeah. comes in, the Lubbock, Texas principal comes in, and those people begin to shift the balance in his direction. Yes. That's exactly right. Exactly right. And then in, in school in Lubbock, they had the Accelerator Reader Program. Now, it's mm-hmm. not a program I particularly proposed to. Mm-hmm. But Nicholas, he came home and he said to me, I have to read a book and take a test. That's all he is. What you don't see is that Nicholas read for two hours a night, five and six and seven nights a week to read one Goosebumps book. In Australia, he's reading 20 minutes a night. There's an exponential there that is unexpected. So we always think of our educational system as being terrible. And now you're the first person that I'm that is excited about our educational system. It makes me happy to hear. It gives me hope. Well, you see, child who is disciplined, I've got to read this book. We didn't see that level of discipline in Australia because the expectation wasn't there. Mm-hmm. If you're behind in something, what have you got to do to catch up? Right. And so just to just to synthesize where we are, so his his specific diagnosis is the school diagnosis is dyslexia? No. What's the actual diagnosis? The school diagnosis is speech language impaired. Okay. Today we would call it developmental language disorder. It's like dyslexia, only worse. Got it. Much worse. And he, in fact, sits on the second percentile of speech language impairment. That's two, two out of 100. Meaning it's very severe with him. Very severe. And when that test was done, he had no memory for, for these abstract words, which are fundamental to learning to read. And it was mm-hmm. it taught them that taught me so much about reading. Mm-hmm. That's yet, not- yet, even with that severe test of disability, if you just shifted the method, so you have the curiosity based on him looking at a map and trying to understand what's not there. You use these the, the blocks for the math, et cetera. That's enough to overcome it, which is kind of unbelievable and fantastic. One more component about Lubbock, yes. which is astounding. If You've got to know where Lubbock is geographically. Uh-huh. It's nowhere. Yeah. It's, no, it's the moon. <laughs> And to drive anywhere, you know, it's six hours to Santa Fe, it's six hours to Dallas, it's 10 hours to, to Denver. Yep. Sitting in the car a lot. Yep. What you do when, the kid, when your children are young and they sit in the car, they fight. It's dangerous. Mm-hmm. Librarian said to me, Lois, listen to books on CD. And is this auditory processing better at this point? Yes. And so what is it with the auditory processing that's different than the visual processing? It takes longer. It takes longer to learn anything, to hear it, and then to spin it round in your brain and say, well, what does that say? And then you have to think of an answer, and then you've got to get that answer out through your mouth with words in the correct order. Right. It's like, you know, you're bilingual. Yeah. It's like 
your first language is, is pictures, the second language is speaking. Yep. And you've got to do that shift all the time. It's hard work. It takes more effort. And then sometimes the words don't come out in the right order. Yet he was entranced by these audiobooks. You credit this with a little bit of a breakthrough. And that it, it, it describe how it worked, what was so powerful about it. The first book we listened to was Aliens Ate My Homework. There's Nicholas listening, taking it in, and then able to reproduce the whole passage of what this crazy guy had said. And it blew me away. He has a memory that I had not anticipated. Mm-hmm. Memory for language mm-hmm. I had not understood. Mm-hmm. I've always thought that the way the learning disabilities work is the process of acquiring the information is much slower, but that's very different than not being able to acquire the information. So the educational system seems to put a high premium on processing speed as opposed to a high premium, I would say, on creativity or depth of understanding. Does that resonate with you? Yes, very much so. Totally with you. A lot of people are learning about the implications of emotional learning going alongside learning to read. When our children are put into situations where they are grossly unhappy and told, you know, just learn it, we forget we're dealing with the child who can't do it. And when a child is emotionally withdrawn and unstable, and stigmatized, no learning is going to happen. Right. How do you weigh that across the experience that any parent has had too, that sometimes kids are a pain in the neck and you got to push them a little bit? And all people see is you've got to learn these letters and sounds and you've got to do it this way. So I would imagine that more rote educational systems like China, like Russia, these types of things, they must have hordes of people who feel terrible. Yes. Reading and writing is absolutely critical. Mm-hmm. Nicholas said to me once, what would have happened to me in Captain Cook's day? Mm. And I said, Nicholas, you would have been fine because you would have had all these other skills that people that mattered. Mm-hmm. Today... Reading and writing, if you don't get it, stops you from engaging with the rest of the world. Yep, agreed. Probably math as well. So then you, at some point, this becomes a much part of your life that you become an educator in this. So how has this whole experience now changed what your approach is to teaching? When I went to Lubbock, one of the first people I met was a lady whose 13-year-old son was non-reading. Hmm. It spent four years in a phonics-only reading program and came out with... What's, what's phonics? Teaching of letters and sounds. Got it. Okay. It says, and you've got to just do these things until you get it. And we're going to do it the same way every day until you get it. And if you don't get it today, you'll get it tomorrow or next week or next month. Well, he didn't get it. He didn't get it. And so by 13, his trauma's got to be unbelievably deep. He's got to feel like a total dummy after years and years of this and still not getting it, right? It's terrible teaching. I taught the boy over the summer, and at the end of the summer, the mother wrote to the school district and said, you employ this woman or I sue you. I got employed. So slow down for a second. How did you teach the kid how to read after all of that? 
the, the first thing I do is take my box lesson, which is in my book, Reverse to Memoir, and I put a box in front of them and they go, this is different. And on the front of the box, there's what could be in this box, what should be in this box, and what would you like to find in this box? And then there's three choices. So they have to make a decision. And what they don't know is they actually have the information in their brain. But they have to work out, yes, this is what could be in the box. And it could be a number of things, but it should be shoes. And I would like it to be something really exotic, a box of gold or lots mm -hmm. of and then you open the box, and inside there are more boxes mm. of juice with no label mm -hmm. and a letter saying what could be in this bottle, what should be in it, what would you like to find it. So slow down. This is fascinating. So this 13-year-old, like 13-year-olds can be kind of surly. And so you're sitting down and then having them open the, all these boxes. And... I guess it's you're turning it into a game that's kind of fun and creative, and so they're a little bit intrigued. But is there not a reaction on the 13-year-old's part? Like, this is a joke. Like, why am I spending time too old to be playing games like this? They're aware they can't read like everyone else. Mm. But when you bring out a box like that, immediately you've come from another angle. This right. is my time. Just like the swim teacher did with your son. Yes. And did you come up with this thing in the boxes? Yes, I did. And You know, they, the reading teacher sent Nicholas home with two sentences to learn the word saw. Right. Saw a cat climb up a tree and I saw a man rob a bank. And Nicholas read in front of me, I saw a cat. No. I was a cat. No. I saw add a cat. No. And, I, and then he just threw the paper at me. And it took me a while to work out what was going on. And I use this in all of my professional development with teachers. And I say to them, what is wrong? What's happening? Yes. And very few can tell me. You did. Yeah, I'm curious. What is, what is happening? The word saw has three meanings. Right. Teacher has only given him the abstract meaning of the word saw. Right. He is thinking of the saw meaning to cut. Yes. And so he said, I saw a cat, I cut a cat. No, you don't do that. Uh-huh. I was never a cat. No, so that doesn't make any sense. The teaching is poor. They've given a sentence that the child cannot understand. Fascinating. Only given him the abstract meaning. She's failed to show him how the word works in the real world and in language. And it seems to me that the interesting thing is, in this case, confusing saw, see, and saw, cut, it's actually a deeper form of thinking. It's like actually things could mean two things at once. And so which one are you meeting? But then if the child is not capable of articulating, they're going to go crazy. But what their, their, their sensitivity to it is high. I read this academic paper, and it's written by a famous Australian professor, Brian Campbell, and it's called Beyond the Deficit Theory. And he said, when children don't learn to read, the first thing we do is blame the child. Mm -hmm. It's taken me a long time. I haven't gotten over that because that has then dictated my thinking. When you come to words like would, could, and should, they're abstract words. We don't show children what they mean or how they work. Mm. My box lesson does. When a child can't remember anything, you have to ask why. Why can't they remember it? Mm. 
because it's isolated, it's abstract, it's irrelevant. Mm. We have to turn around to make it connected, related, meaningful.